Every Monday night here on State of the Bay, we're live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, does it seem like a lot of people you know have COVID? That might be because cases are on the rise. We'll get an update from State of the Bay favorite, Dr. Peter Chen Hong, about what we need to worry about and not with this new wave of infections. And California wants to increase the number of students transferring from two-year community colleges to four-year colleges. This seems like a great deal for students. Why aren't more taking advantage of it? And finally, are you afraid of developing Alzheimer's or dementia? A new documentary reframes these dreaded conditions around hope and action. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Later this hour, we're talking about California's plan to move more students from community colleges into four-year colleges. The hope is that it will help more students earn bachelor's degrees. Seems like a good deal for students, so why isn't it working? Also, many of us are afraid of developing Alzheimer's or dementia. A new documentary about these two conditions focuses on stories of hope, progress, and inspiration. We'll hear more. But first, Bay Area wastewater is showing an uptick in COVID infections. COVID hospitalizations are up over 63 percent, and COVID tests are sold out in some local pharmacies. Experts experts told us that COVID wouldn't be going away, but still, it feels disheartening to hear that cases are on the rise. So we're very pleased to have State of the Bay regular contributor Dr. Peter Chen Hong back on our show to take us through this new COVID wave. Peter's an infectious disease specialist at UCSF. Welcome back to State of the Pay, Peter Chin Hong. So good to be back. Well, we love it. It's a reunion. I mean, never under the best conditions because we're always talking about COVID, I think, but we're so happy to have you. Um, So first of all, I think the question on everybody's mind is, if you test positive for COVID right now, what are you supposed to do? So if you're test positive right now, I think um, the automatic uh, thing that you're supposed to do is just to stay away from going out for about five days. Uh, and then after that, you can go around with a mask if you're getting better uh, overall. And uh, you keep the mask on until day 10. You can get out of uh, the mask if between, you know, after five days and before 10 days, you test negative. But you don't need a test after day 10 you can exit safely. The big point and the big reminder is once you test positive, ask yourself, uh, are you eligible for Paxlovid? You assume you are, talk to your clinician and um, take it within that first five days. The priority groups are those who are older than 65 and those who are immune compromised. Right. So this is so if you're immune compromised or if you're over 65, you should consider taking Paxlovid if you test positive this time around. Yes. Uh, and some would say older than 50 even. Um, the older you are, the bigger the bank, the buck. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the way I think about it. Well, are you seeing a rise in um, COVID cases? I mean, is this second wave or is this wave that's happening something that you anticipated? Um, and how severe is it? Yeah, so it's something we anticipated. Um, but because we haven't really seen the crest yet, I think we are just kind of crossing our fingers and watching very closely. But, uh, you know, it, with given how many cases we're seeing uh, based on the wastewater, uh, which is kind of, kind of sky high, and although hospitalizations are increasing, they're not increasing numerically as much uh, as the cases would suggest, which means that overall we are in a different place compared to before. And just to give you some perspective, you know, before July, we were kind of around, um, you know, I would say 10 to 15 cases in the four UCSF hospitals. Uh, right now, we're around um, 25. Mm. But in the peak of winter, we're around 100. So that kind of gives you a scale of where we are. And it's kind of a mirror of the state and of the country as well. This time last year, we are about uh, 80, more than 80% more in uh, in terms of uh hospitalizations. Well, what is this new variant that we're dealing with? First, what is it called and what are the symptoms? So the new variant that um, is predominant is called Eris. It's uh, EG5. It's uh, basically a flavor of Omicron and related to all of the XBB things that have been going around all year. Um, The symptoms are very uh, similar. It it comprises about 
21% of the cases. And when you look at all the cases, they're mainly all Omicron and all XBB variants. I think the the one that people are looking at um, is this other one, which already got a name, uh, Perola. It's BA 2.86. Not very common, but the reason why people are paying attention to it is that it has 36 mutations that are different from the type the vaccine was based on, XBB 1.5. So if it rules the roost eventually, and and most people are hoping it doesn't, um, you know, it will be a little bit different from uh, what we had expected. I I love the names. They're very hard to keep track of. (laughs) Yes. I feel a little sorry for you, but obviously you're a scientist, so you can keep track of them. But it's hard for the public, I think, to keep track of where we are when there are so many variants. Um, well, tell me this. What about a booster shot? Should I be getting a booster or and is that different than getting another vaccination? So I think the CDC has simplified things um, and they're trying to get away from the idea of boosters because I think most people can't keep track of it. But nevertheless, I mean, I think, you know, you can think of it as a shot, um, which is what the the way they're thinking about the once a year uh, initiative um, to be rolled out in September with COVID together with flu and um, other vaccines that people can get. But uh, in terms of where we are right now with the available booster, which uh, of which there's plentiful supplies, um, you know, for most people, I think you can wait because cases are rising, I think if you're older than 65 and hadn't gotten a booster or a shot in a while for COVID, which is most people, because most people got it in uh, October when it was rolled out uh, most recently, or if you're immune compromised of, of any age, uh, go ahead and get it. I mean, you would still be able to get the new shot in September or probably two months after uh, the last shot, which because it's a new formulation. Um but if you wait, don't forget about Paxlovid or other early therapies, which can keep you away from the hospital. For everyone else, I think, um, you know, being very sensitive to what's going on, um, you know, it's probably okay to wait until uh, the new shot is unveiled, uh, hopefully by the end of September. Well, you know, we've come to the end of summer where people, a lot of people were on vacation and we're beginning the start of the school year. You know, children are coming back together. And is this round of COVID, this variant that you're talking about, is it the same as it was with children, which is meaning meaning that children were not as adversely affected by COVID as perhaps older people? Yes, we think it's going to act the same ways in, in terms of who gets most seriously affected. And children will be uh, generally less affected than adults. The older you are, the more serious it is. Of course, it doesn't mean that some kids won't get sick. But in general, it's uh, really targeting uh, still older populations and to a lesser extent uh, immune compromise, of which there's a big range. So it's going to be the most severe, seriously immune compromised. And that is because most people already have some experience with COVID. We have an immune repertoire that's uh, fairly uh, robust at this point in general in the population. But because immunity wanes the fastest, the older you get, and the more immune compromised you are, you know, we want to pay a little bit more attention to those populations. You know, uh, I was asking around for people's questions before this segment because they're they all like, oh, Peter Chin Hong's going to be on the show. I have a question. So somebody asked me about whether the symptoms show up right away or do they take some time? This person was exposed to a person who had COVID but had not tested positive for three or four days. Is it possible that yes. you could skip it? or? So that's a great question. In general, as the the COVID variants evolve, there's a shorter time from when you get exposed to when you develop symptoms for most people. However, so, you know, if you get sniffles two days after exposure, um, you know, I would test and then repeat it in a day if um, if you're negative. But I've heard of cases, even in this era, where people are testing five days uh, after exposure as being positive. But in general, we think about five days is the time. And if you pass day five and you're doing okay, um, chances are you're not going to uh, develop symptoms. 
Well, and here's another question. In terms of getting that shot that, as you noted, was is coming out at the end of September, does it matter who the manufacturer is? Last time around, it felt like people were saying, oh, well, Pfizer's a little better than Moderna. Actually, no, Moderna's better than Pfizer, which is better than Johnson & Johnson. Does it matter? It doesn't matter in general. And that's because, again, most people have a diverse repertoire of antibodies that have been developed and as well as other memory T cells and B cells. And in the past, you know, people are calibrating, well, you know, does Pfizer give you a little bit better picture of the spike protein? Does Moderna? But at this point, with a combination of people getting a bunch of vaccines and or exposure, um, it, it really doesn't matter because you're just reminding the immune system. With that said, you know, there are people who, um, <clears throat> for example, had a reaction to a Pfizer or Moderna on mRNA. And I think for those folks, Novavax is a really good uh, alternative uh, for those individuals. And what about testing? I mean, uh, people have those test kits that they got from, um, you know, the P- the ones that you put the swab in and there's PCR testing. What's the gold standard for testing this time around? So I think um, the takeaway point is that the home testing is still very good, even though the variants have evolved. The point with that is that you have to repeat it if it's negative. So the, you know, probably the cumulative sensitivity is as good as the PCR. PCRs are still uh, free in some senses because they're given in the health uh, system, but they're harder to get in terms of appointments and they're more inconvenient. But uh, if you do the the home test well enough and you remember to repeat it, uh, it can do just as good a job uh, over time. And should I be wearing a mask? That's a million-dollar question. I think <laughs> I always carry one in, in my pocket um, these days especially, and it all depends on who you are. Um, it's pretty easy to use. Um, I think that if you're planning a, a trip to Hawaii or that trip that you, you know, uh, planned for the last three years and you, 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 didn't, you weren't able to go, <clears throat> you don't want to get sick right now regardless and, and go on that plane. So... For those reasons, I think it might be well-intentioned to put on that mask uh, in public transit, going to the airport, um, being a little careful. If you live with somebody who's immune compromised or older, if you are one of those groups, or if you're going to visit somebody, like I was visiting my mom last week in New York, and I was just a little bit more careful uh, before. Not that I'm not careful, but I was more aware of things because I didn't want to expose us. So that's the kind of calculus I think we're using now. And it's a little bit hard because everybody has a little bit different reason. Risk means different things to different people. Well, these are good lessons for us all. And um, we're always appreciative that you are the person that we can go to to get the, the latest and best information, Peter. Thanks so much, Grace. Um, and that was Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He's an infectious disease specialist at UCSF. And even though he's always on talking about infectious disease, it's always have, it's always a treat to have him on. Coming up next on State of the Bay, we're talking about the dismally low transfer rates from community colleges to four-year colleges. That's right after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Community colleges are an important component of California's education system. They help drive economic mobility by providing a cost-effective way to get a college degree. The state has put a great deal of effort into getting community college students to go on to four-year universities to earn bachelor's degrees, but the transfer rates have been stubbornly low. To help us understand why, I'm joined by Adam Eck. Adam Eckelman, who covers community colleges for the nonprofit news organization Cal Matters, and he recently published an analysis on these low transfer rates. Welcome to State of the Bay, Adam. Thanks for having me, Grace. Yeah, and we're also joined by Alyssa Nguyen. She's the senior director of the research and planning group for California Community Colleges. Welcome to State of the Bay, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. And listeners, we want you to be part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about the state's efforts to get more students to transfer out of two-year community colleges and into four-year schools. And we're going to be talking about why this is so difficult to do. Questions to you, listeners. Have you successfully transferred into a four-year college program? And are you someone who planned to transfer but didn't? What helped you with that? What didn't? 
Or are you an administrator who can shed some light on as to why these numbers are so low? We want to hear about your experiences. Give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at org. So, Alyssa, I wanted to start with you. Um, you have a personal experience, and which is why you're so devoted to the community college experience as your what you do for your work. Tell us a little bit about what this means to you, this pipeline from community college to four-year college. So I think that it's all of the things you just described earlier in terms of community college is really serving as an engine for um, socioeconomic mobility for um, the vast majority of the population. So I myself was a first-generation college student, and I actually started at a community college in California. And part of the reason why I looked to um, completing my higher education in a community college was because that was the only opportunity for me to continue. So I myself did not graduate from high school. And so the community college was sort of the only place that I could start. And so starting at a community college, it gave me an opportunity not only to learn more, but also gave me opportunities that opened up pathways to higher level um, degrees, as well as career opportunities that like I was never aware of um, as I was growing up because of where I was growing up and who I was exposed to Mm. uh, growing up. So I really see community colleges as sort of the the place where many students and many people who um, wouldn't have had the opportunity to even know what was possible in terms of career opportunities and pathways a place where they can learn what is even out there and possible. Well, Alyssa, will you tell us a little bit about what your experience was? Like, what school did you start with? What were you What were you studying, and where did you end up? So, I attended um, College of the Redwoods in Eureka, California, in Humboldt County. Um, and so, when I started there, I because I didn't graduate from high school, there was a placement test, so I had to place. Um, into English and math. I was placed in remedial um, math, um, but I actually went in and talked to a counselor because when I looked at all of what was required in order to transfer, I quickly saw that if I started at the lowest level math um, course level, it would take me an extra year or two to be able to even um, meet the minimum requirements to transfer. And so I had to basically advocate for myself in order to be placed and to enroll in a higher level um, math course. Um, In addition, I, because I am first generation, I, there wasn't anyone around me who I could ask about what were all of the requirements and paperwork and things like that. So I had to sort of Um, triangulate multiple sources of information um, in order to figure out what counted and what didn't. And even when I did all of the things that I thought were needed in order to successfully transfer, once I got to the university, I was met with um, some challenges and barriers in terms of um, courses that were um, comparable from the community college to the university. So Um, In the first semester that I was at the university, for example, I was told that a history course that I had enrolled in because I was told that the history course at the community college didn't count towards the bachelor's degree at the university at Humboldt State, even though the units transferred over, that because it wasn't equivalent, I had to... um, I had to drop the class and take another course that counted. But in doing that, because I was on financial aid and needed to stay full-time with 12 units, it was like this whole process of trying to find um, courses 
like three or four weeks into the semester that I could take to make sure that didn't negatively impact Hmm. um, my financial aid. And I share this because based on our research, these are not Um, these are not unique experiences that I had trying to navigate the community college system and then transfer. I I was going to say that. I think that it it sounds both frustrating and like the red tape of it just feels hard. And Adam, I wanted to turn to you about that. I mean, just taking a step back a little bit, what is the role of the community college? Like, why do we have that in our California system? Um, what What is it supposed to do? And is it supposed to be this hard to transfer once you're done? It's definitely not supposed to be this hard. <laughs> so back in 1960, the state set out something called this master plan of higher education. And that's really where they designed the three different higher education institutions that we know of now the community college system with 116 different schools, the CSU or the Cal State system, and the UC system, three different segments. And each was kind of supposed to have its own role. So the community college system uh, has the most roles. Uh, One of them, of course, is awarding associate degrees, which are also known as two-year degrees. But community colleges also do other things. So community colleges are also a place where you can get a certificate or like uh, a job that you might be interested in, like to become an EMT or to become a medical scribe or a translator in American Sign Language. Um, The CSUs are really focused on awarding bachelor's degrees, those four-year degrees, as well as master's degrees in some cases. And the UC systems were really designed uh, as a research body. Um, So that's where you could go to get a PhD as well as, of course, other degrees. Now, those kind of hard and fast rules have started to blur over the past few years, but the idea is still the same. Community college is supposed to be the most affordable and most accessible first step for students who want to take that career training or that associate degree and get a job immediately. They can, but for students who want to you know, get more education, they should be able to transfer easily to a four-year institution like a CSU. And ultimately, those students at the CSU should be able to transfer to a UC if they want to get like a PhD. So where what what is causing the the hitch in the system going from and, and a community college and the a junior college are pretty much are the same thing, right? And so, yep. so what's the hitch there between going between community college per se and CSU or UC? Is it just red tape? Well, yeah. I mean, Alyssa definitely hit on some of it. There is a lot of red tape. We talk a lot about um, the importance of streamlining, and there's been a lot of different uh, bills that have come through to help make the system easier. Things like course numbering, you know, so that the same course at the same at, at different community colleges are clearly the same number and that those courses are clearly transferable to a bachelor's degree at a CSU. And that just basic procedural and administrative work is still underway. And it's really complicated because each institution has some level of independence, you know, professors and faculty, they want to teach classes, they want to be empowered to teach things that they're excited about um, and that they understand well, but then you have to coordinate among what is ultimately the largest public higher education system in the country. So streamlining is a part of it, but it's not the only thing. You also have to look at the behavior of students. Community colleges accept everyone, and community college students are often low income. Many community college students are working a full-time job in addition to going to school. Many community college students have children. They might be caring for relatives. And life happens. So it's important to note that, you know, some of it is streamlining and some of it is bureaucracy that legislators are trying to fix. And some of it is also the fact that, you know, life is hard and many, many community college students aren't full time. Many community college students aren't between the ages of 18 and 22. They might be 30 or 40. I wrote one article about all of the community college students who are over 50. And there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, 
thinking about what an employer requires, right? Because that's one of these things. This is supposed to offer economic mobility. Is an AA, an associate's degree, enough to be competitive in the job market, Alyssa? So I would say it depends on the program area. So there are a number of career technical education um, programs where a an associate degree may be sufficient in order for a student to enter um, an entry-level position um, in an industry area. But there are many programs or many um, industries that require much more um, than just an associate's degree. So an example of this is um, welding, for example. So with welding, um, there are people who are able to get a very well-paying job with just a certificate or an associate's degree. But in a program or a major that, um, for example, that I majored in, so I majored in, in psychology, an associate's degree will not get me very far in the job market. So um, I knew and I learned quickly that in order to be able to find any potential careers that offered any type of a livable wage that at a minimum as a psychology uh, major, I needed to at least get a master's degree. Mm. So as a community college and looking at what were all of the requirements to even get to a master's degree um, to be able to even be eligible for any career um, opportunities that provided a livable wage um, was a little scary at the time. Mm -hmm. But again, like going back to your question, it it really depends. And so even though the community colleges, with the community colleges serving, especially in California, serving nearly 2 million students, there's a bit of sort of, I think, um, planning that needs to be done in terms of like, how does the community college as a system try to meet the workforce needs but also collaborate within this larger higher education ecosystem to help sort of prepare students for um, higher level degrees and more preparation that are needed for certain career pathways that require more than just an associate's degree. Well, let me reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm Grace Wan. We're talking about community college and the role it plays in California's system of higher education and whether it's easy or not easy to transfer out of a community college into a four-year system. We'd love to hear from you. Have you successfully transferred into a four-year college or are you someone who planned to transfer but couldn't? What was your experience in the community college system? Would you recommend it to others? Or are you an administrator who can shed some light as to why these numbers are so low? You can join us by calling 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at org. Adam, one of the reasons California has this system of community colleges is to make college more accessible, more affordable for students. I mean, the tuition at a community college is less than a CSU or a UC. Is that still the case? I mean, that was the, the dream. Is that still what what's happening? It is still very, very much the case. I mean, you can get an associate degree at community college for under or around $3,000. But that's only if you don't qualify for financial aid. If you do qualify for, for financial aid in California, the tuition is free. And that's you know really true in many ways for the entire public higher education system. But there's a big, big catch here, a caveat. Um, and that's the cost of living. California is expensive. We know that rent in this state and just about everywhere is high. You've got to live and you've got to, you know, buy groceries. Um, And so for many students in California, the cost of going to school isn't really about the cost of tuition. It's about the cost of just living here. Mm. And let's talk a little bit more about the analysis that you did on transfer rates. Um, Tell us what your data showed, what you looked at, um, and why it's important. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things is that transfer rates are low, as you said, but they've also been low for a long time. This is not news that I'm breaking. Um, <laughs> for decades, we've known that most community college students, in some cases, the vast majority, 
never end up going to a four-year institution at all. And people have said there's lots of reasons for that. We've talked about them. Some of it is life comes up, students are busy. Some of it is that the process is complicated. And some of it is that people who go to community college don't always want to go to a four-year institution. Hmm. Some folks go to community college, they just want to get, they want to take a few classes or they want to get a certificate in something like welding and then get a nice high-paying job. And so when you're evaluating transfer rates, we tried to understand, you know, first of all, what's the best way to measure this was. And there's a lot of debate about that question. But for the purposes of our analysis, we looked at students who at the outset of community college, so on day one, said, I want to go to community college and then transfer to a four-year institution like a CSU or a UC. Of those students, somewhere around only 10% of them actually ended up transferring. Hmm. So yeah, it's pretty low. But we went even further than that. Because when you look at all of the state's 116 community colleges, you realize there's some pretty significant disparities. Some community colleges have higher rates. They're still low, still like under a quarter, you know, under 25% here. Whereas some have like a one or 2% rate of transfer. So really, really low. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were trying to understand why that is. And one of the big things that we found was a difference between urban and rural community colleges. In rural areas, a lot of people said it's hard to transfer to a CSU or UC or another four-year institution to get your bachelor's because there are no four-year institutions nearby. Hmm. There are schools um, in rural areas like Palo Verde College in Blythe, which is on the Arizona-California border, um, like Saracoso College, which is in Ridgecrest near Death Valley, and some schools in the far north um, that just have really low transfer rates because it's a couple hundred miles to the nearest CSU or UC. But there were other things we saw too. You know, even in some urban areas, we found community colleges with low transfer rates. Um, in some cases, just a few miles, you know, the, the two different community college campuses are separated by just a few miles, and yet they have really different rates. And there were a lot of explanations for that. Um, some folks said, you know, the high schools are preparing students differently. If you go to a better high school, you're going to be more prepared for community college than if you go to a worse high school. And, you know, a couple we know in this country, just a few miles can mean a very, very different um, high school experience. It's, it's just so fascinating. I mean, it's great that the system exists. And I was curious, is this system typical of what you might find in another state? Or is California unique in having a community college, a Cal State system, and then a UC, Adam? Well, California has the biggest higher education system in the country. There's no question about it. Um, Something like one quarter of all community college students live in California. Our system is huge. (laughs) So in that sense, yeah, we're pretty exceptional. Um, Many, many states have community college systems. And there's often some notion of transfer, this idea that there should be a two-year institution that gives associate degrees that is accessible and easy, affordable, um, and that can be a pathway for bachelor's degrees if students want that. That is also changing in a lot of states. So many states are starting to say, you know what, we want our community colleges and our four-year institutions to be more closely related to make it easier to transfer. Um, In some schools, for instance, will separate kind of the dual mission of community colleges to award two-year degrees and to give career training, they'll separate that into two different things. So you'll often hear about like technical colleges in other states. And in a technical college, the focus is really direct career training. So, you know, getting a certificate in something like being an EMT or being a translator. Um, And then they'll have a separate institution that just awards Uh, associate degrees and kind of serves as a gateway to a four-year institution. 
Well, Jack writes, one of the best things I ever did in my life was go to community college, where I learned the trade that I have been in for the last 38 years. Just make sure you like doing whatever occupation you decide to pursue. So there's a thumbs up for community college. I mean, Alyssa, you've gone through this process. So what is the best practice in order to get a student to transfer? What are your tips on making that possible or making it less friction-filled? So I think I'm going to take this question with um, two hats on. So the first hat I'll put on is as a student who was who transferred um, from a community college to a university. And then the second hat I'll put on is based on the research that we've done um, within the RP group in terms of what are some of the things we heard from students in terms of what um, helped facilitate their transfer. Um, so the first hat as a student, I would say because I was so proactive, but because the college um, provided information both in written form, but also had um, really helpful and caring um, counselors as well as faculty, I think ensuring that um, students have access to people who, at least for me, it felt like they cared about my success as a student, um, having people who care who truly genuinely care about students' um, success and a strong support network, I think is critical, as well as having clear and consistent information that is both um, made available in written form, whether that's on a college's website or in partner websites, but also training amongst um, faculty and staff and counselors in terms of what are all of the different requirements and paperwork need it in order to help um, students transfer. So I found having consistent information um, as well as people who cared and who could be a resource to help um, sort of help make sense of things that were unclear and requirements that were unclear um, to me really helpful in mm. ensuring that I can transfer. Um, putting on my researcher's hat based on the research that we've done um, within the organization, um, reinforcing the whole notion of a very strong support no network. So for many California community colleges, especially ones who are first generation, they don't have people in their personal lives who can help them sort of um, learn the ropes or navigate um, oftentimes very complex educational systems and paperwork. And so making sure that at the institution, at the community college, there are individuals who not only can provide the, I would say, personal support in terms of being a cheerleader for the student success, but also someone who they can go to for the technical knowledge to help them navigate um, the system. And then the other piece going back to, I think, also honing in on uh, making sure that there are clear and consistent information being communicated to students. So in one of the studies we conducted, when we tried to um, sort of unpack some of the barriers to transfer, one of the issues that students consistently brought up was um, the inconsistent um, information they were getting, not only from counselors, but also faculty and other um, individuals at the institution. Oh, well, but um, That's got to be so frustrating. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, when we asked what really helped you sort of um, successfully transfer, again, students noted counselors and faculty who were there who could provide them with the information about what was all required and how to sort of navigate um, those systems. So I think like at a minimum, those two, those two factors are really, really critical for ensuring student success. And then the other piece that I would add based on what Adam was sharing in terms of the um, affordability and some of the topics um, we were talking about earlier on affordability is helping students sort of navigate all of the financial and non-financial resources available to them to make college work. So as Adam noted, the cost of tuition is much more, the cost of um, college is much more than just tuition. It is also the cost of living, which as we know is very high in California. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Adam, what is the state doing to improve on these transfer rates? I mean, Alyssa mentioned, you know, standardizing the, the course numbers so it's easy to transfer. What are the other um, ways in which the state's addressing the problem, if at all? There's a bunch. Um, actually, one of the reasons that I first started on this journey was because um, some state legislators have called for an audit. It's kind of like an investigation into the transfer process and the transfer rates. Um, so that means that they'll be spending state money, something around like four to $600,000 to look into this system and deliver a report to the state legislature saying, here's you know why the numbers are low. Here's what we can do to streamline and improve the process. So that report will be coming out. Um, but then in addition to that, there's also been a lot of laws that have been passed. Um, one of them goes to this question of remedial education that Alyssa mentioned, uh, and she was kind of talking about her personal experience. So remedial education has been pretty prevalent across California's community colleges for years, where a student will enter community college and the college will say, you know what, you're not even ready for college level classes. You have to take a couple high school level classes before we can give you um, a college level credit. Um, And that system has really a lot of research from groups like the RP group have said this doesn't work because the ways that they were testing students, they found disproportionately affected low income students and students of color. And they ultimately said, you know what, it makes more sense to just put students in college level classes and give them the supports they need to succeed. Um, And so that there, there were actually two laws that were passed a few years ago that have slowly started to chip away at that. And a lot of community colleges, when I talked to them about their low transfer rates, they said that they're still working on that Hmm. and slowly seeing the progress. So Los Angeles was a good example where they said, you know, a couple of years ago, they, there was a report that found that they had the highest number, maybe the highest percentage of um, unprepared right. students. Oh, that's just need education. Well, there's so much here to work out and figure out, but and it's great to know that the two of you are on this question, uh, and we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, Adam Eckelman of Cal Matters and Elise Nguyen of the Research and Planning Group for Community Colleges, or the RP Group. Thanks again for being on State of the Bay. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Coming up after the break, a documentary that offers a new take on Alzheimer's and dementia, one that's about action and hope. We'll be right back. Hey, this is One Way Possible, your sonic scavenger. It's Monday, and tonight I will be with you from 8 to 10 p.m. So join me and catch a vibe right here on KALW 91.7 FM and KALW.org. KALW is listener-funded, so we're reliant on you to support the programming we all deserve. There are many ways to help, whether it's donating money or stocks or used cars. And if you want to ensure generations of listeners can continue to learn from and enjoy KALW, please consider including us and the audiences we serve in a bequest. Make it happen by contacting our Advancement Director, John Carroll. He's at john, that's J-O-N, at KALW.org. You make our work possible. Thank you. For many, the mere mention of Alzheimer's disease or dementia can inspire fear, denial, or even anger. A new film hopes to change that. The documentary Keys, Bags, Names, Words shines a light on those suffering from and caring for patients with dementia. Its intimate portrayals highlight the complexities of dealing with these conditions, but also the possibilities for love, laughter, connection, and joy. And in doing so, the film seeks to shift the narrative from one of fear and inertia to hope and action. So I'm so glad to be sitting down now with Cynthia Stone, producer and director of Keys, Bags, Names, Words. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. And we're also joined by Jill Harmon, who is featured in the film as a caretaker for her husband, Don. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. I'm very grateful to be here and move this cause forward. Well, we're glad to have you both here with us to talk about this really powerful film. So let's start with a short clip from it. She made nice artwork before dementia, but during dementia, she made gorgeous artwork.
the usual pattern is to be brokenhearted about what's lost. You can still mourn that, but keep yourself open to what's arriving anew. That clip is a great example of how this film puts dementia in a new light. And Cynthia, did you set out to make a film with this positive message or did it evolve as you as you worked on this documentary? Well, I think both. Um, it started out with an oral history project called Hearsay at UCSF with the Global Brain Health Institute where caregivers and people who had dementia, doctors, scientists all told stories about dementia and then they performed it. And the stories were so powerful that they decided to make a film. And I decided to go and talk to these global fellows who are all over the world. And I said, you know, what do you want this film to be? Uh, what messages should we talk about in this film? And they, they talked about things that we would expect, like, you know, how difficult it is and how often families can go bankrupt caring for people, how just heartbreaking it is. But they also said things like hope and that there are magical moments and beautiful moments and ways to connect with our loved ones. And it really became clear that hope was the the message that changing the narrative about how we think about dementia, giving hope about what we can do to prevent dementia, because 30 to 40 percent of cases can be prevented and how we can live a higher quality of life after you have a diagnosis. Well, it's wonderful, Jill, to have you with us. And I do want to say I'm I'm sorry for your loss. I understand that, that Don passed away since the filmings. There's a point in the film where we see you rising uh, to care for Don multiple times uh, during the night. And a huge part of the narrative about dementia is the toll that it takes on caregivers. And we yes. get a sense of that toll, but we also, we do really see your love and devotion to Don shine through. Can you talk about how you struck that balance? There were times I was totally exhausted, but I, I never was angry. I never was resentful. My love became even more deep. And what I had to do is bring in help at the end and take naps and get some care and respite care so that I could continue. And it's important to ask your family members or friends. They want to help, but they don't know how to help. And I think that if you have people that can step in, it's very critical. And Jill, I understand you would have spa days for Don. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yes. I took care of all his bodily functions as far as his creams and, you know, uh, sunscreen and doing his hair and making sure he looked good. And that's so much a part of the dignity and respect that you have for an individual instead make sure they're clean and make sure they feel good. And I take Hawaiian shirts and cut up the backs. So I could slip it on him because he loved Hawaiian shirts. And any advice you'd give to someone who's just starting out now as a, as a caretaker for someone with dementia? Yes, their reality has changed, but they're still an individual. They're still there. And so it's incumbent on people who love the person that has these problems is to Step into their reality, lean into where they are, because they're doing the best they can in their, their own reality and appreciate them and find humor. Laughter and humor are vital to this. We had hilarious moments. And I wanted to recommend that there are some wonderful support groups. And there's many, many different opportunities now on the internet that give you guidelines for helping a caregiver and a family member. I want people that are in that position to know that they don't have to do it alone, that they can reach out and get some help. I want to play another clip from the film. So let's take a listen here. Words are now becoming very difficult for her. And people were just gutted for her, just sad. Um, but there was this drive to how do we help her? What can we do? And so we started to do some movement exercises and I realised that within the movement, 
Jeanette was finding a real joy and a confidence. So this is one of several examples in the film of the power of art that can really bring joy and connection to those who are living with dementia. Cynthia, can you just talk a little bit about that dynamic? Yes, art is one of the really powerful ways we can connect and and help people. Music is extremely powerful as a way to bring people back into their memories. One of our fellows is using music as a therapy for people to kind of trigger their memories. The creative work really connects people to themselves sometimes. There's a really nice clip from Dana Walrathy, artist when somebody told her she should have her mom paint stripes of turquoise and purple across the page and she didn't believe it but she started it with her mom she's going back and forth and back and forth painting the stripes and her mom looked up and said that's very relaxing um i don't know there's just something about the arts that can really be a powerful tool for people who have dementia no i think you have some really powerful uh, examples of that in the film. Let me add on about the arts and the because music was so important to Dawn. And if people don't have instruments, they can sing to them. They can hold their hand and sing and sway their hand and be there because it's so important. It's a critical element to make them connect with memories. Cynthia, so I wanted to ask about one of the women you profile in the film, Helen Rockford Brennan. Mm-hmm. If you could describe her journey with dementia and what you hope viewers my takeaway from the experience that that you documented of her. Sure, sure. Yeah, Helen is a remarkable person. She was diagnosed in her early 60s with early onset dementia. She was a very high-powered business person. And when she got that diagnosis, she went into a deep depression, which is very common. And after a time, she got connected with Trinity College Dublin went to visit someone there and and this person really showed her how she could use strategies to help her memory. And so she employed the, these strategies, like writing everything down, like mindfulness when she got really depressed, trying to get connected in the community with someone who could help her with executive function, memory. And so she has now become one of the leading advocates in the world for the rights of people with dementia. She's making a big difference in people's lives. And so I guess what she would want you to take away is that if you get that early, early diagnosis, it's not over, that there's a lot you can do and not to be afraid and to lean into it and figure out what you can do to live a high quality of life. So the U.S. premiere of Key's Bags, Names, Words is coming up on September 7th at the Vogue Theater in San Francisco. Listeners can't make that screening. How do you suggest that they're able to view this documentary? Yeah, thanks. It's also going to be at the Elmwood in Berkeley on September 13th and the Rialto in Sebastopol, September 19th. And then also you could go to our website, keysbagsnameswords.com. And you can learn about how to host a screening. Well, I really appreciate your focusing on this issue and raising awareness and want to congratulate you for what is really a a beautiful and I think very important film for people to watch. And thank you both for joining us on State of the Bay, Cynthia Stone and Jill Harmon. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We're off next week for Labor Day, but we'll be back on September 11th. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard, let us know. Email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show is produced by Wendy Holcomb and Chris Nooney. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Grace Wan. Good night, and thanks for listening. <laughs>